As you watch this teaching, I would like to ask you to please subscribe, like, and comment so more people can see it. Welcome to Home Group. This is our home group, and I am your home group leader. And my name, by the way, is Rick Renner. And tonight I'm so blessed to be here with Denise Renner, Joel Renner, and Maxime Maxnikov, whom somebody has called Maximum Maxime. And where in the world is Paul Renner? Paul Renner doing business stuff somewhere. He has been in so many ministry meetings in Moscow this week. And of course, we miss Philip. Philip is rarely here because he moved to America with his family. My goodness, how many years ago? It's been, it's been a while. And he has his own ministry in America. And we're so proud of what he's doing. And God has anointed him by the Spirit. But here we are tonight. And it's good to be together, Sister Denise. Well, thank you, Rick. And Home Group, welcome. So excited about being with you tonight and what God is going to speak to your heart through the Word of God. And we get to do it together. Thank you for being with us. How about you, Mr. Renner? Well, Home Group leader Rick Renner, I have to tell you, I'm looking forward to today's Home Group because we're going to talk about Priscilla, the first woman preacher. That's right. And That's I think it. it's exciting. Of course, I'm excited to be here. I'm learning a lot. Thank you for yeah. inviting me. Well, you know, we grew up hearing that it was wrong for a woman to preach. Well, in our house, that would be a problem because Denise is a preacher. And Denise and I were both separately called to the ministry before we were married. I mean, Denise didn't enter into the ministry because she married me. She had her own call on her life. And when God called us together as a couple, He was bringing two gifts together and our marriage from the very, very beginning has had a purpose. And I want to tell you, you need to find out what is the purpose of God for your marriage. If you're just called to each other, sometimes you get frustrated. It just feels like a dead end. But when you find the purpose of God for your marriage, it really adds so much new vitality to your marriage. It gives you purpose. God has a purpose for your marriage. I think that's so important, Denise. It is important. Because it, I think it takes us away from ourselves and puts our hearts on minds on other people. Uh, of course, your children and uh, whatever God puts in your hand to do. And because he called you together and you have a covenant together, then we can complement one another in our different gifts. Yes. And that means that that gift in you should get bigger and that gift in your spouse should get bigger because we're covenant together and God has a purpose. For every marriage. For your marriage. So. How does someone find out the purpose for their marriage? Well, you got to pray and seek the face of God. A lot of people just think, well, we have kids. That's our purpose. Well, then the kids leave. Mm -hmm. And then you're back to the same place you started at. So, I mean, And that's when people often get in troubles in their marriage because they feel something's empty, something's not complete. And that's why I'm telling you, you need to seek the Lord about the purpose of your marriage. It's really very important. But we talk about how we got together in the book Unlikely. And guys... Mm -hmm. I proposed to Denise three times. Not because she didn't accept, but because I kept canceling. <laughs> I was so afraid of marriage. The first time I proposed, I called Denise later and I said, can we, can we cancel that? Can we, can we act like that didn't happen? Then the second time, which it's all in the book, 
took three times before it stuck, and it's all and it's hysterical, and it's in this story. When I say it is unlikely that God has used me and Denise, <laughs> it is really unlikely. It's unlikely that we were even married, but God brought us together. He had a purpose for us. And wow, we produce these wonderful sons by the grace of God, and oh, it's so exciting to see what the Lord has done with our life. And we've walked through really low places, and it's all in this book. We tell it all in this book. Somebody who read this book said, wow, you didn't hold back on telling anything. You told it all. You know why? Because all of it is part of the story of God's grace. It's unlikely that we survived a lot of things, and you can survive too. And I don't want you just to read this to read our story. That is not the purpose of this book. It's to encourage you that God wants to do something with you. It is filled with teaching. And that's why I want you to order it. Please order it today by going to renner.org or by giving us a call. And we want you to get their free study guide, which we're offering. And today is the last day we're offering it. Today's it, guys. We're wrapping it up. Ten powerful women. And today we're going to be looking at Priscilla, the first woman preacher in the Bible after Mary Magdalene. Because Mary Magdalene was really the first, the first preacher. But Priscilla was something else. And it comes with a full series, which is audio or video. And when you get the two together, it's so powerful because you can read it while you're listening to it or while you're looking at it and really reinforce that teaching inside you. And we're also offering you right now a book that I did not write, but I believe you need it. And it's called All the Women of the Bible. Somebody said, well, when are you going to talk about men? It's coming. And Denise, that's good, isn't it? It's very good. It, and I want that book. All right. She always says she wants this book. But anyway, I'll give it to you. You need this book too. All the Women of the Bible. It's a resource that you will use again and again and again and again and again. But, all right, Denise, we grew up hearing that it was not all right for a woman to preach. Well, I'm just going to be honest. Denise and I grew up as Southern Baptists. And in the Southern Baptist Church, women taught in the Sunday school... Women were Sunday school directors. Women were in the choir. Women ran the nursery. Women were everywhere. If there were no women in the church, <laughs> the church would have fallen to pieces. Women are very, very important. But women couldn't preach. Well, they really could, but you couldn't call it preaching. They could testify. They could share scripture. But women couldn't preach. And... If women were going to be called into the ministry, they could be called into educational ministry. They could be called to be a secretary. They could even be called to be a missionary. Well, what do missionaries do? Preach. Preach. They preach. <laughs> but we just wouldn't permit a woman to be a public preacher. And many people today still believe that women should not preach. Okay, tell me why. Because they don't understand the Bible. And we're going to go over some of those verses tonight. But if you study the Bible, there were a lot of preachers in the Bible that were female. But let's begin with this. Let's go to Acts chapter 18, verse 1. Paul has just finished his ministry in Athens, which was just semi-successful. And he's come to the city of Athens by himself. And I believe that when Paul was walking into Athens... He was really reviewing his ministry. It was a low moment in his life. And the Bible says, after these things, these things are this low moment in Athens. 
Paul departed from Athens and came to Corinth. There was a road that came from Athens all the way to Corinth. Paul comes walking into town. And by the way, that road connects right in Corinth and goes all the way to another port, which is on the west side of that peninsula. And it says, He found a certain Jew named Aquila, born in Pontius, lately come from Italy with his wife, Priscilla, because that Claudius had commanded all the Jews to depart from Rome and came unto them. But let's look at it again. Acts 18, verse 1. After these things, Paul departed from Athens, came to Corinth, verse 2, and found a certain Jew. The word found is a Greek word, heurisko, which is where we get the word eureka. This was a eureka moment. Because when Paul was walking into Corinth, he was coming there by himself. He was alone. And apostles rarely traveled alone. This was a very low moment in his life. He was probably wondering, what am I going to find when I get to Corinth? If Athens was bad, ay, ay, ay. Corinth is the epitome of idolatry. What am I going to find when I get there? I'm by myself. And suddenly he found a certain Jew. It was a eureka moment. Hallelujah. It was such a euphoric moment. In fact, the word euphoria is also from this word translated found. It was a euphoric moment for Paul. And he found a certain Jew named Aquila, born in Pontius, lately come from Italy. Now, why did he come from Italy? Because about the year 49, we think, Claudius, who was the Roman emperor, got really upset with all the Jews that were in Jerusalem. Because in the Jewish communities, there was a big, big commotion and uproar, fighting among themselves over somebody named Christus. It was Jesus. The Jews that got saved were preaching Christ, and the non-converted Jews were upset, and there was this big debate, and Claudius said, stop it, stop it, stop it. The Christians wouldn't stop preaching. So finally he said, I've had all you Jews just get out of here. And he kicked all of them out in one fail swoop. So now Aquila and Priscilla, who were leaders of the church in Jerusalem, have been evicted from Rome. They've been put on a ship that sails east. It lands at the western port of Greece. They're walking into Corinth, a horrible, horrible city, thinking, oh, what are we going to find when we get there? Corinth is one of the worst places in the world. Paul is walking in a low moment from Athens coming into Corinth, and they literally bump on into each other as they enter the city. No accident. God did not devise any of the problems but Romans 8:28 says God is able to make all things work together for the good of them who know God and those who are the called according to his purpose and God was bringing together an apostolic team they didn't even know together know each other but God brought them together in this euphoric moment they found each other and it says with his wife Priscilla and when you read this in Greek it's kind of like oh yeah failed to mention he had a wife with him, Priscilla. That is the last time in the Bible she is ever mentioned after his name. The first time they appear, he's mentioned first, she's mentioned second, almost as an afterthought. But after they hooked up with the Apostle Paul, she was so liberated and so powerful in ministry that after that, her name always appears before her husband's, which means she probably had the greater gift. She became more noted. She became more known. I think of Wally and Marilyn Hickey. 
They were both called into the ministry. But Marilyn's gift is so magnificent. People usually talked about Marilyn. Oh, yeah, and she had a husband named Wallace. Who was wonderful. Who was wonderful, one of my best friends. And Marilyn is one of our friends to this day. They were like Aquila and Priscilla. But it goes on and it says, he came with his wife, Priscilla. Well, when you come to Colossians 3, verse 11, we have a revolutionary verse. Paul says, in Christ there is neither Jew nor Greek, circumcision nor uncircumcision, barbarian, Scythian, bond nor free, but Christ is all and in all. In that verse, when I say it is revolutionary, I mean no one had ever written such a statement ever, 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 ever. This could only happen in one place, in Christ. Because in the first century world, there were all kinds of class distinctions and barriers and race distinctions and language distinctions. Jews and Greeks didn't get along. But in Christ, the difference between Jews and Greeks evaporates. Circumcision and uncircumcision. You might think, well, isn't that just a different way of saying Jewish and Greek? No, not really. Circumcision refers to those Jews that were very religious. Uncircumcision is the Jews that did not abide by the law. And these were in opposition to each other. But in Christ, the very religious and the non-religious Jews, it all disappears. It evaporates. Hmm. Barbarian and Scythian. What is that? Barbarian was anyone who didn't speak Latin or Greek. They spoke bad language. They were considered to be rude, couth, savage. But even the barbarians believed they were better than Scythians. That's why they're both mentioned here. Scythians were the lowest rung of the ladder among the barbarian world. Everybody wants to believe they're better than somebody else. And barbarians said, well, we may be barbarians, but we are not Scythians. Scythians were the lowest. But in Christ, all the distinctions evaporate between barbarians and Scythians. And then Paul says, neither bond nor free. Well, guess what? Bond nor free describes slaves and those that are free. And in the ancient world, even if you had slaves in your home, and most people did, you were not permitted culturally or socially to interact with slaves publicly in a meeting. You just couldn't be in the same meeting together because the distinctions and the barriers were too great between these two worlds. It was forbidden. But in Christ, guess what? In one meeting, there are Jews, there are Greeks, circumcision, uncircumcision, barbarian, Scythian, the bond, the free. And he says, but Christ is all and in all. This verse is just revolutionary. Wow, still today. But then when you go to Galatians 3.28, he adds something very important. He says, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither bond nor free, and neither what? Male, male nor, nor female. And you've got to translate it honestly in context. It means in Christ, the distinctions between male and female, as far as usability by God and being in a public meeting together, the distinctions have evaporated. They have evaporated. Now, that means when God looks at me and God looks at Denise, he doesn't look at me male and Denise female. He looks at us just as children of God. Now in life we have different services because we're just made differently. But in Christ, there's no distinction. And God can use anybody. Now, people who say, yeah, but women can't preach and women can't speak publicly, they use certain verses. So let's look at those verses. 
Well, let's go to 1 Corinthians 14, 34, where the Bible says, let your women keep silence in the churches. People read that and they think Paul was anti-women. Paul was against women. He would not permit women to speak in the church. Well, let's look at it. The word silence means to keep control on one's mouth as opposed to rambunctious speaking. Okay, stop, 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 stop. This is so revolutionary already because women are in a public meeting. You gotta think a little deeper. Part of the problem in Russian, we say people are not deep swimmers. Some people are just shallow swimmers with what they read. You gotta dive a little deeper. Women in the Roman and Greek world were not permitted in meetings with men. Women were not even permitted to publicly shop. If you saw a woman in a market, she was a prostitute. Women were forbidden to publicly shop. They were to stay at home. When Paul says, let the women keep silence in the churches, wait, 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 wait. We've already come to something magnificent. Women are in a church meeting. Paul was not against women. He threw open the door. Women were attending meetings side by side with men. This could only happen in Christ. And when he says, let them keep silence, do you know why he said that? Because they had never been in a public meeting. They didn't know how to behave in a public meeting. They had never been in public meetings. He threw open the door. He didn't say, tell them to shut up and send them home. He said, let's teach the women how to behave in a public setting with men. And the women were getting all riled up in the meetings. They were wanting to ask their husband questions. They were wanting to have conversations. And Paul was saying, hey, hey, when you're in a public meeting, keep control of your mouth. Then he goes on and he says, and if they will learn anything. The Greek actually says, if however... They are really longing to seriously learn. He wanted them to learn. He wanted them to be in the meetings. Let them ask their husbands at home. And the word ask really means to interrogate. Not interrogate their husbands during the meetings, but wait until they get at home. He was not forbidding women to speak or to ask or to learn. He was just trying to teach women how to carry on in a public setting. He was setting them free and enabling them to be there. It says, ask their husbands at home for it is a shame for women to speak in the church. The word speak is the Greek word lelain, which really means to carry on a conversation. If somebody's preaching, it's not time for a woman or a man, these rules apply to men as well, to turn to their neighbor and carry on a conversation and interrupt the meeting. Wait until you get home. It's a shame to behave like that which is why we shouldn't talk while people are preaching. And sometimes Denise corrects me. But when you come to 1 Timothy chapter 2, <laughs> verse 11, Paul also says, let the women learn in silence with all subjection. People say, that's right, let those women be quiet. Let them learn in silence. Well, hey, what does the first part of the verse say? Let the women learn. The word learn is the Greek word manthano. It's where you get the word for a disciple. It really is the word for an apprentice. The women can become apprentices just like the men. But Paul, again, was saying they need to learn in silence. This word silence means not rambunctious speaking. There's a place to talk. There's a place to be quiet. He wasn't forbidding them. He was liberating them and teaching them how to carry on in a public setting. Denise, this kind of instruction had never been given to women. Rick, this is amazing because... The, through the Holy Spirit and Apostle Paul, 
He is elevating women. He is lifting them up because they were put down so much. And he's coming in with the message of Christ and lifting up women. And, and Jesus did that, Rick. Jesus he did, did he that. He did. He did. But another verse that people use is 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 12, where the Bible says, I do not allow a woman to usurp authority over the man, but to be in silence. And they say, ah, there it is. A woman can't say anything publicly because she's usurping authority over the man. Well, what does usurp authority mean? I'm going to read to you. It depicts a domineering attitude to use one's position to take up arms against another. To act as an autocrat, it pictures one who with his own hand kills others. To use one's position to dominate or to manipulate. So there it is. Hey, we could say the same thing to men. Men are not to use their position to kill others, to be domineering. That's not why God gives us possessions. And when I read this, I think about years ago, when Denise and I first moved to the former Soviet Union, Denise and I were invited to speak and minister in a traditional underground Pentecostal church. I spoke, but first Denise sang. And Denise was wearing lipstick and she was wearing earrings. And in Russian, a woman in the back of the church out loud said, look at her. Look at her lipstick. Look at that woman wearing earrings. That woman, she might have been sitting in the back of the church. She was dominating the entire service. Manipulative, killing with her words, slaughtering, trying to take control. She was out of order. If a man had done that, it also would have been out of order. It doesn't matter whether you're a male or a female. That's not the way that it should be done. But women in the first century were speaking out loud because they didn't know they couldn't do that. Etiquette. They didn't know etiquette. Well, I can imagine how excited they were. Oh, my goodness. To, to be invited to a meeting. I mean, they couldn't even go shopping. And here they are in a meeting with their husband. I cannot even imagine how excited they were. Then let's go to Romans 16, verse 1 where Paul writes, and he says, I commend unto you Phoebe, our sister. So that establishes Phoebe is a sister. She is a woman, which is a servant of the church, which is at Cancrea, the word servant, the Greek word diakonon. It is a female deacon. That is a public position in the church. Paul doesn't have a thing against her. In fact, he commends her. He commends her. And when you read it, verse 2, it says to help her in any business where she needs help. This was a very influential woman in the church of Cancrea, which I've been to. Cancrea is a very beautiful place. But then you go to Romans 16, verse 3. Greet who? What does it say? Priscilla and Aquila. Whose name is first? Priscilla's. She has emerged. When they hooked up with the Apostle Paul, and by the way, this must have been pretty rough for Aquila because he was raised as a Jew, to see his wife step forward. There had to be a special grace on Aquila because his wife really emerged as the greater gift of the two of them. And Paul calls them my helpers, associates. He calls Aquila and Priscilla 
his associates. Then you go to Romans 16, verse 4. He says they laid down their lives. Then 16, verse 5, greet likewise the church that is in their house. They both have pastoral responsibility, including her. Romans 16, verse 7, salute Andronicus and Junia. That's a man and a woman. My kinsmen, my fellow prisoners who are known among the apostles. Paul had two relatives who were apostles. He was not the only apostle in his family. That's amazing. God calls families and one of them was a woman. Or how about Romans 16, verse 12? I love this one. Salute Tryphena and Tryphosa who labor in the Lord. The word labor implies they also are involved in ministry. Two women in ministry, Tryphena and Tryphosa. And the reason they were named Tryphena and Tryphosa is because these were sisters and they were twins. Twins were always given names like this. Romans 16, verse 15. Salute Philologus and Julia. There's a woman. Narius and his sister Olympus, two women here, Julia and Olympus, and all the saints which are with them, with them implies alongside of them, they had pastoral responsibilities for them. These are two women who have some measure of pastoral responsibility. And Priscilla was a masterful, masterful teacher. In fact, Priscilla was such a masterful teacher that there are some theologians who allege she wrote the book of Hebrews because we don't know who wrote the book of Hebrews. I'm not saying that, but that tells you what kind of a Bible teacher she was that anybody would even allege that. So when people say, well, women can't teach and women can't preach, I don't want to be insulting, but it's time to dive a little deeper. Let's not do shallow swimming. Let's go a little deeper and look a little deeper into culture, a little deeper into what these verses really mean. These verses were liberating for women, and Priscilla was a powerful, powerful woman who became an apostle with her husband, serving alongside the Apostle Paul for years and years and years and years. And Denise, did you notice in this verse, in Romans 16, they have a church where? In Rome, which means at the end of the day, they returned. The attack ended and they returned mm. to their ministry in Rome. Sometimes the victory doesn't come immediately, but if you'll hang on, God will turn things around. Mm. And this ministry couple went back to Rome where they resumed their ministry and were out of time. And what verse is that? It's in Romans chapter 16. They were in Rome. Paul was writing the letter to the Romans. Romans. Wow. They wow. were in Rome again. They had returned to Rome. But we have just concluded our home group on 10 powerful women. Yes. It's been great. I just sat in this right. last one was the most exciting. I really enjoyed that. Bye-bye. If that teaching helped you, would you please subscribe, like, and comment so more people can see it.